Welcome back to another episode of Dr. Me First. I'm your colleague in medicine, coach in life, bringing the sass every single episode <sighs> and all a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> I'm Dr. Aaron Wiseman, and today I am talking with a fellow physician colleague and coach, Dr. Jeff Cohn. We get into a technique that I had no idea about, but after he told me a few stories, I said, hey, you got to come on the podcast. It's all about positive deviance. I know it sounds weird but I guarantee you'll get into it and you will want a piece of it. So let's get into our conversation today. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jeff Cohn. It's so great to have you here with me today. Great to be here, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, tell the people out in podcasting world a little bit about yourself and the magic you put into the world. Thanks. I'm uh, getting to be an old guy. Uh, just turned 67, retired hematologist, oncologist. Uh, did that for the first half of my career, moved into hospital administration leadership, ran the quality and patient safety department for my institution for almost a dozen years and uh, loved that work and then moved out of the hospital space, led a little nonprofit, became trained and certified as a coach. And that's my primary professional work at this point. I work with physicians, particularly those who are looking to transition into something other than full-time clinical practice because something is calling to them. Yeah, and that's how we met, was on the coaching front. You came and joined Physician Coaching Alliance, and we'd had a couple interactions together. And then you told me some really good information and a great story, and I said, you got to come on the podcast. Yep. Well, it, it relates to a transformative series of events that occurred to me early in my quality patient safety leadership role. And I don't use the word transformative lightly because I think it gets overused, but this, this truly changed me, my worldview, how I interact with people. So if I may share some of that story. Yeah. So yeah, please do. Yeah. So I got invited to hear about and apply to be part of, on behalf of my institution, a project to tackle what was then back in 2005, the infection scourge of the day, MRSA, still a, a pathogen no one wants to get, but uh, pales in comparison to what we've had the last couple of years. But we were having more and more people come into the hospital with something other than MRSA and acquire MRSA while they were there, get sick from it, sometimes even die from it. And uh, everything that we were trying to do following CDC guidelines was getting us nowhere. So this approach was flipping that on its head. And instead of looking to outside experts telling us what to do, trying to discover inside experts who were working for us, already part of us, that had ideas and practices that could help us uh, get different and better outcomes. And this process is called positive deviance. When I first uh, 
got this invitation. I had never heard those two words sitting side by side like that, but I came to learn about positive deviance, what it what it's about, and apply it to MRSA. And it was an amazing story. Yeah. And I loved when you, because at first when you told me positive deviance, like I was thinking like deviance, like, like in trouble, like you're deviating from what you're supposed to be doing. But I really loved when you first told me this story and what really pulled at my heart was instead of going and getting that outside consultant, you you all really did this new way of discovering your own answers by looking inside the four walls of your institution and your nursing staff, your house cleaning staff, your doctors going to them and saying, you guys know us best. You are experts. How can you help us with this MRSA problem? Right. And it was with the, not just belief, it was trusting the certainty that somewhere out there, those answers existed, you know, that, that the solutions were there. And that's, that was part of what was transformative about this. It's like, I could give up the responsibility of having the answer. I could approach this purely through like a toddler's eyes and, and really be curious, wanting to learn knowing that someone out there, multiple someones were going to help us be taught what was going to be different and better than our usual practices. Yeah. So you had this issue. You knew that hospital-acquired infections were on the rise in your hospital and in your institution. You had gotten this invitation to do this new way of hospital direction, internal best practices with positive deviance. Tell me how that timeline then worked out in this. So we began with a a kickoff event where we literally invited hundreds of people to come and join us and told stories. We had people in small group conversations. People were talking about how MRSA had interacted with them professionally, personally. And then we just We took a risk, invited anyone who wanted to show up at nine o'clock the next day to show up and we would figure out how to get started. Nine o'clock, we were standing there kind of twiddling our thumbs and no one had gotten there yet. And we started to panic. And then we remembered, no, our institution, nine o'clock usually means 9.10, 9.15. And by 9.15, we had... 25 people and another 25 or so trickled in a few minutes later. And we spent the next couple of hours self-organizing and saying, all right, here's how we're going to get started. We started with four very different units of the hospital that volunteered to be guinea pig pilot units. And it was great how diverse they were. We had a surgical ICU, a medical step-down unit, a transplant slash oncology unit, and a rehab unit that focused on brain injury, post-brain injury patients. So very different. Super different settings. Yeah, super different. And you know what it would take to prevent MRSA transmission 
in a post-operative setting is different than what it takes when someone you know, doesn't have the ability to communicate verbally nor necessarily follow directions like on the brain injury unit, many of the people were. So we started working with them and the basic approach that we used um, that we learned was uh, a discovery intervention that we called a discovery and action dialogue. We would ask for 15 minutes of time from various people who worked in or came in contact with those units. And we say, can we get 10, 15 minutes to talk about MRSA with you and pull a little group together? And we'd start with a series of questions, all aimed at trying to surface practices that were different than the norm and seemed to be better than the norm. So were you going to like those units and, and mm-hmm. pulling them like 10 minutes? Hey, you got 10 minutes to come talk in the break room? Yeah. Yeah. And one of my mentors that part of what I got to help lead this project was mentorship in how to apply this positive deviance, or we call it PD method. And so I asked this mentor, who should we engage? And he said, well, everyone For anyone who has no possibility of transmitting MRSA, you probably don't need to come in contact with, but everybody else you do. So that meant night shift, weekend shift, you know, every role, chaplain, dietary staff, environmental services, you name it. And we, we wanted to have at least one conversation with all of them about MRSA and get their thoughts. So you went, you went up, you met the people where they're at. You didn't pull them down into a meeting, which I love that too. And you start having conversations. Do you care if I ask what were the questions that you initially asked each of the groups? So, yeah, no, that that's critical. And this is the framework for virtually any conversation using PD. So the start, the first question is, what's the ideal? Like whatever the challenge is, what do you think ideally is the way that it should be tackled? So that's what we started with. What's the ideal way to prevent MRSA from being transmitted to patients? So then the next question is what gets in the way? of that happening all the time. So what are the barriers that people face? So then the third is kind of the critical PD question. Have you ever been able to do what you said was the ideal, even though you faced that barrier that you just told me about? Or do you know anyone else who seems to? A version of that that we asked that kind of got us close to the answer to this is if your mom was a patient on this unit, who would you want taking care of her? How come? What is it they do? From these questions, you don't want to, it's the positive deviant isn't the person as much as it is the behavior that they do. What's the practice that they're doing that's different and better or seems to be different and better? So then once these practices start to bubble up. We use the term 
butterfly catching to describe what the facilitator's role is as they hear these things starting to be mentioned that might be different and better and might be able to be done by everyone because part of the PD framework requires that it be available to everyone. Uh, It doesn't require any special skills, expertise, equipment, things like that. You know, everyone should be able to do it. So you'd hear these practices bubble up, you gently catch them and hold it up to the group as though you were catching a butterfly and have them inspect it and say, all right, so what do you think? You know, Jane said that she does X, Y, Z to make sure that when she enters a patient's room, she's washed her hands and put on the gowns and gloves and all the things she's supposed to. Could you do that? You know, what would it take for you to be able to do that? So that's the next question. Then wrapping it up is uh, any help that anyone needs, anyone else that we need to include in this, and who's going to try what we just decided is possibly a different and better practice and tell us about how it goes when we get back together again next week. We allowed virtually everything that was suggested by them to happen unless it was clearly going to be dangerous potentially harmful but one of the key things that we were striving for was ownership of this project by the people that we were looking to for the answers so we didn't want to say no to just about anything Yeah. And so you went around, you had these short meetings on those four different units or in areas that uh, bumped into these four different units. And how many meetings would you say that you had with different staff? There were hundreds and hundreds of them. And these sometimes were one off, but most of the time they were repeating units because You wanted to close the loops as they started to try out these new practices and and have people step up and really start to exert some local leadership on the efforts. And that that happened quite often. And so they they would come up with the ideas. You would ask the questions. You'd butterfly catch. Like, so what do you think about this idea? They would put it into actual practice as they're taking care of patients or going about their job. And then you would follow up and say, like, how's it going? What has worked? What maybe didn't work as well? Yes. And we also provided them with data that they had never had before. One of the key concepts in positive deviance is making the invisible visible. So they they knew when they had a MRSA infection because the infection prevention nurse that interfaced with that unit would come down and tell them usually a week or so after it happened. So that wasn't particularly useful. What they began to do through this project was swab the noses of people who entered their units, whether they were new admissions or transfers. However, whenever they first got to the unit, they swabbed them to see do they did they harbor MRSA already or did they not? For those that didn't, they got swabbed when they left the unit too, going home or being transferred. And any 
anyone who tested positive on discharge from the unit who was negative in the beginning, we called that a conversion. And they learned about that within 24 hours of the patient having left. So they got a rate of conversion. They learned how many people came to their unit with MRSA already and how many who didn't have it got it while they were there. And we plotted that on a graph week after week after week. Number of days since a conversion was a metric that units started to talk about. Uh, 50 days since our last conversion, and they would have posters at the nurse's unit. Um, So PD needs to be bathed in data. It's a very data-driven approach, and this was. So ownership of the data, availability of the data, and then having their actions be viewed against what the data is showing to determine is this making a difference or not? Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask is, um, you know, like what ideas, because I'm thinking back to that time, you know, I was pretty early in training at that point, but it was a big deal. MRSA was a big deal. We weren't doing kind of what then became status quo. So what ideas were generated and what seemed to start working and, and where, who came up with them? So literally it was dozens, if not hundreds of people and ideas. And, um, you know, I don't think that this was like some practices, which you can put a small checklist of behaviors down. And if everybody does those every time, that'll solve the problem. This, I feel like was a more complex challenge than that with a lot of local flavor to what needed to be done differently. Some some of the things that bubbled up that I remember particularly fondly, well, one was early on a group comprised of ICU nurses, remember one of the units was a surgical ICU, respiratory therapists, and patient transporters said, you know, we have a problem that we need to bring to you guys. Our current practice for how to move a patient from the surgical ICU on the fourth floor down to the CAT scanners in the basement pretty much guarantees that we're going to spread this when we get in the elevators and walk through the hallways. And we need to be doing something differently. They said this to our infection prevention experts. And to their credit, they said, okay, show us what you do currently and show us what you think would be different and better. And so they like role-played it out and the infection prevention experts said, okay, go with it and see how it works. And, you know, we'll, we'll trust you to guide us because it wasn't like the CDC had evidence-based recommendations on what to do in that scenario. So did they, did they get a CT scanner like just down the hallway or in the unit? No, they couldn't. This is landlocked old buildings. There, there was no room for that. The CT scanners were going to stay in the basement. Okay. So you needed to get patients there more safely and maybe rethink your processes so that you didn't have to move them 
up and down as frequently. So those sorts of things changed too. Another practice that bubbled up was brought to us by one of the patient transporters. These were guys that many thought of as being at the bottom of the organizational hierarchy. And they were administration was even thinking about outsourcing this role to some vendor. So one one longtime transporter got interested in our project. And you know, they go everywhere. They see pretty much everything. And so he came to one of our steering group meetings and said, with his deep voice, he could have been a late night FM jazz DJ, but he said, uh, you know, I know that when you go into a room with a MRSA patient, you're supposed to put gowns on and gloves on, but a lot of people don't. And I think one of the reasons is when you try and go into the room, you may see that the trash can that you're going to throw your disposable gown into is already overflowing with gowns that have been previously used. And if you thought you were going to have to stick your hand into that mess, you might not put the gown on in the first place. And I've got a different way to dispose of the gown that will solve that problem. So he showed us, his name was Jasper Palmer. It became known as the Palmer method. He had invented a way of rolling the gown up into a little ball and then wrapping the glove on top of it so that it became a little three inch in diameter ball that the trash can could hold dozens of. And so people started to do the Palmer method. To be totally truthful, that wasn't the end of this story because some people refuse to do the Palmer method. It takes too long. I don't have 30 seconds, 60 seconds to wrap up my gown when I leave the the room. But when he told us about this problem, the head of environmental services said, you know what? He's right. This is a problem. And our trash cans are part of the problem because we've got these trash cans that we're putting bags into that have rigid walls and can't expand as we're filling them with these gowns, but they make these trash cans where the bag can expand and you're not constraining it by the walls of the trash can. And if we used them, we could fit a lot more gowns, even the way people are discarding them now. So they wound up switching out the trash cans and the problem wound up going away. So the Palmer method was part of it, but it was also that Jasper shined a light on a problem that no one was noticing or doing anything or even thinking about. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so with all of this, taking the suggestions of the people who are kind of at the front and then seeing what worked with the data and, you know, I mean, I love that you just pretty much empowered people to say, no, you're right. You do this. Show me how, and we'll see how we can translate this into other places. What was the outcome for your organization? So we we wound up uh, basically solving the problem. Before we started the work, 
we had had like 140, 150 patients acquire MRSA every year, and about a quarter of them died from their infections. And the year the project ended, we had mortalities and like 30 infections in total. So we had reduced by 75, 80% and in a sustainable way. And everything that we did came from the people. Yeah. And so how do you see that project, the acceptance among the employees versus like a top-down mandated, you will start doing this, these yellow bags show up at the, the unit. How was this perceived differently because of that you doing the positive deviance method? It was totally different than our usual approach. Again, everything was by invitation. So people were participating because they wanted to. And after those four initial units, the leaders of those units started telling their friends about what they were doing. And we got calls from other units. We want to be a part. We want to be the next one. So, you know, when does that happen in a project? Not very often, but it happened this time. Uh, The Joint Commission came around and did a survey our annual survey six months into the project. And when they went to the pilot units, they the people who worked there said, we love the MRSA project. So, you know, people just maybe for the first time in their careers were being recognized as being experts by people who had positional authority over them, but who we're truly acting like, no, you guys have the solutions. Please teach us, tell us. So we felt like we engaged everybody. It became part of the organizational culture. New language started to arise. People started to refer to others as being PDs. And, you know, we learned that actually there was a culture or a counterculture that kind of frowned on the idea of PD, like you're being a goody goody or something. If you're showing us my, I have a way that's different and better, but after units got engaged in the work, I think that perception disappeared and people realized, no, you know what, if, if someone does have a different and better way, we should hear about it and we should change our behaviors accordingly. So, and, and part of the PD framework talks about the importance of the solutions coming from within your own community. So these were their peers that were suggesting this stuff. And uh, we didn't trigger the immune response that may cause people to reject something that someone else is able to do somewhere else. So I think that's an important part of this. Yeah, I think it's a great, great part of it. What other projects have you heard about or went on to do using PD? Well, first, the PD lens now lives inside me. So like almost any time I hear about a problem which seems to be 
intractable. I initially flip it on its head, as one of my mentors said, and say, all right, so does anyone ever get a different and better outcome, you know, even once? What happens those times? So, so that framework is useful for all kinds of challenges that we in the world faces. In my personal professional career, we use this for a variety of other patient safety challenges. I, outside of the hospital environment, I've had experience using PD not so successfully in a public school environment where the challenge was that many new teachers after the first couple of years of their career, stop looking to up their game and improve and just kind of plateau the rest of their careers. So we tried utilizing the PD framework, found that as tough a regulatory environment as healthcare is, it's nothing compared to public education. What is being faced there is incredible. So anyway, for that and a variety of other reasons, PD didn't land so well there. But I've got friends who have used PD in projects ranging from high school truancy, behavior of prison guards, and its impact on recidivism of prisoners sex trade workers and STDs, tons of work around the globe using the PD framework. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I just, I going back, I just love that it's the wisdom is within and, and really utilizing the resources we already have. Cause there's nothing more frustrating to me that when I go to a meeting And the powers that be have said, we have hired such and such consultant from such and such big city to come in and evaluate our problem with whatever. And and so I think that this is a really great framework to, like you said, the culture aspect of like, we trust you. We know you do your job well. Help us figure this out. I I just, I think it's so amazing for people who, because I know we have several listeners who are in leadership that deal stuff with quality, with patient safety, with even provider satisfaction. I could see where this would be a huge role in, you know, burnout and helping physicians and providers. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? My website is care to change coaching. It's all one word spelled like you'd think it would be spelled.com. And you can reach me at Jeff at Care to Change Coaching at J-E-F-F. Perfect. Yeah, because I think there's definitely potential. Do you have a best reference or resource for people who want to learn more about PD? Is there a book? Is there a website? Is there a, a mentor you recommend? Yeah, there's uh, the Positive Deviance Initiative has a website. I have to look it up, but it no, may... no worries. We'll put in the show notes, so we'll Google it because that's the best anyway. And and there's a classic Harvard Business Review article, uh, your company's secret change agents, that tells the 
amazing original story of how this work began in Vietnam, where kids were dying of starvation in villages. And the people that taught me the model discovered it, using it in that really challenging environment to save the lives of starving kids. Yeah. And you sent me that article. So I'll make sure I get that linked in the show notes too. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on, for giving us your own personal case study. I I just love it. I'll also have to tag, you showed me the video too of the Palmer method. I'll tag that in the show notes as well. So people can see this really easy, what seems non-complex, but yet after you explained it to me, I was like, oh, I'm one of those people that just throw my gown in there and don't wad it up into a nice little ball. Great. And I just, for any, all listeners, I think if you can develop a PD lens to bring into your own personal life, you know, to before getting stuck in the negative view of we've got a big problem, to first begin to ask by asking, well, have we ever solved it? You know, and and focus on the positive initially and see where that can lead you. I think it just changes your view on all sorts of aspects of your life. friend, if you think you're burned out, you probably are. But I've got some good news for you. Head on over to burntouttobadass.com where you can get a CME course. That's right. CME credits to get yourself out of a place of burnout and back to being a total and absolute badass. You'll go through 12 different modules. You'll get to chitty chat with me on the backside and have lots of fun exercises and thought work to do to help you move from a place of just surviving to absolute thriving. So far, we've had many physicians go through the program and they absolutely love it. One of those docs the other day even mentioned to me that she went back and recently did the report card exercise. And you know the wheel of life is in there. If you followed me for half a second, it's definitely one of my top exercises. But anyway, before I give all the details away, go over to burntouttobadass.com and check out the self-paced course same title, Burnt Out to Badass, and get you some CME hours today. I really do love the thought of discovering inside experts because, you know, the people we work around, the people we work with, the random person we bump into the hallway from a different department that we don't even know, they truly are experts in their own right. And I'm so glad that Positive Deviance and Dr. Cohn are bringing them up to the forefront. So with that being said, remember, you are an expert too. No imposter syndrome here. In your life, your calling, your pulse matters.